Thanks for your singing. And we'll go ahead and dismiss the children to Children's Church at this time if they'd like to go. Let's look at Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. If you're using one of the Bibles we have here, that'll be on page 1200. Romans chapter 7. We'll be in this now for a number of weeks. You remember in our study through Romans, we're in the topic of sanctification, something that if you've been attending for through chapter 6, you should be familiar with what that means. The word itself means holiness and the pursuit thereof. Chapters 1 through 5, of course, of Romans were about justification. Chapter 6 moves into the realm of sanctification, and we continue that in chapter 7, really all the way into chapter 8, until we get to about chapter 8, verse 18, and we'll start talking about glorification what we are all looking forward to. In Romans chapter 7, Paul is returning to a topic that he has spoken about a number of times in this letter already. This is a chapter now about the law. It's a chapter about the law. As a matter of fact, in chapter 7, I think it's about 23 times, Paul uses the word law. That's in one chapter. When you get something like that, when you come across a chapter and you're reading and it keeps repeating one word or one phrase over and over again, you've found, essentially, you have found the theme of that chapter. And this is a very important topic, especially in reference to sanctification and the pursuit of holiness. The question that has arisen right back, we can see it right back to Acts chapter 15, right? Right in the early church. What is the relationship to the believe, with the believer to the law? What should the Gentile convert to Christianity, believes in Jesus, what should he or she, how should they view the law? How should they view the Old Testament? What role does it play in their life? Let me summarize what we're going to find very simply, and then I'll have us read the first six verses. What we're going to find is that the law cannot save you. The law could not justify you. And the law in and of itself cannot sanctify you. The law does not have saving power. There is a problem with the law which isn't really the problem with the law itself. There is a problem with us, something Paul has clearly established in the earlier chapters. We're sinners, and sinners do not like law. The law is good, but we by nature are not. So the law cannot save us. The law cannot justify us. The law cannot sanctify us. It only condemns us. That's why we need Jesus and the Holy Spirit. 
If we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the law then can be helpful to us and a delight for us. But without Christ and the Holy Spirit, the law only condemns. Let's read verses 1 through 6, and as always, I'll just pause. I'll ask God's blessing on the passage, and we'll dive in. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God." For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's ask God's blessing on the passage. Father, as we dive in now to chapter 7, we need your help. We want to arrive at right conclusions. I think, God, most of the people in this room want to know Romans more. They want to know you more through Romans. They want to be more understanding of the gospel and its application to their lives. They want to glorify you in their lives. And I know, Lord, that your word, Romans 7, is profitable for that. It's profitable to teach and instruct us and train us. So I pray that you would give us those spiritual eyes to see what we need to see, hearts to receive these things, and wills directed towards obedience to what we find. Help us by your Spirit now. Help me, gift me to do what you've called me to do this morning. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Paul says in verse 1, Do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law. I'll just begin by asking you this question, do you know the law? Or do you even know what Paul is referring to here with this word law and how they, the biblical writers, especially Paul in the book of Romans, uses this word law? What's in his mind, in other words? Not what's maybe in our minds initially, but what is in the mind of the apostle Paul when he thinks about and writes about law and writes to the people in Rome who are familiar with the law. It is interesting to note that the Roman church was predominantly a non-Jewish church. And we are roughly about 20 or so years in, a little over 20 years in now in the book of Romans from the time of Christ to the established church. And there are people in there who are familiar with the law, Gentile people. So we understand that although in Antioch, in the very beginning of a place when they come to faith in Christ, they got to start with some basics, just like we read earlier in Acts 15. All right, so don't eat 
weird strangled meat or drink the blood and abstain from sexual immorality, and we'll get to the rest later, okay? It's like if you were a missionary that went into a cannibalistic tribe somewhere that had never heard the gospel, and you somehow managed to share Jesus with them, and they come to faith in Christ, and you can see the Holy Spirit works, and you're like, oh, wait, what now? Well, let's begin with you not killing people anymore. We'll start there, and we'll kind of work our way out. But you can see within a couple of decades already, even Gentiles were being introduced to law and being taught Old Testament. Don't let it escape your attention that when Paul writes to a predominantly Gentile church, he feels the liberty from beginning to end to just quote from the Old Testament, to mention Old Testament figures like David and Abraham and Adam as though they would be very familiar with what he's talking about. So from the very early church, even in predominantly Gentile places, they were learning the Old Testament. They were learning the law. There were people there who know the law. But specifically, as we study Romans 7, I think it's important to understand what Paul means by law in this context. And the reason I say that is because in the Jewish mind, the word law can have a several different meanings depending on the context. So to Jews, they have their Bible is the, what we call the Old Testament. Genesis to Malachi, theirs is broken up a little bit different than ours. It actually has three sections to it. If you took Hebrew class, uh, which I have to some degree, and wrestled my way through what I could do with that, and found that what I did learn is how the Hebrew Bible structured, okay? That was important. The first, our first five books of the Old Testament are called the Law or the Torah. Then they divided up from there into the prophets and their understanding of prophets a little different than ours because it's going to include what we call even books of history and such. And then they go into the writings, the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature, which we call it. Those are their three main divisions. So a Jew could say, I'm reading in the law this morning. And it doesn't necessarily mean he is reading from the Ten Commandments. He could be reading from Genesis 12 and God calling out Abram. That's Torah. It's interesting, the, the Hebrew word for law is Torah. See, when we hear the, the word law, we're immediately thinking of do this, don't do that, right? Immediately pops into our minds. The Jews didn't necessarily think that way about it. The word Torah simply means instruction, God's instructing his people, whether he's telling them the account of Abraham or of Noah or him delivering his people out of Egypt or if he's giving them the Ten Commandments, you see. So they may be thinking more generally. But they also could be thinking specifically about things like the moral law of God specifically expressed in the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. There, of course, under law was also the ceremonial laws. You've ever read through Leviticus. Those are to the 
Levites and the priestly line and the things that they were to do in temple worship and the sacrifices they were to offer. There was law for that. There were things that they were to do in those. There's ceremonial law. There was also societal laws. You have to understand that God was establishing this nation of people, the Jews, and he was the lawgiver, and they were to live in a particular land as a particular people and obey particular societal laws. And so he put forth things like that, like, hey, if you kill your neighbor's ox, you've got to make that right, and this is how you do it. Or if somebody commits this particular crime, this is the punishment. We understand that. We live in a society, and any civilized society has to have those kinds of laws in which they govern themselves. What most Christians have recognized, most, not all, but most Christians for the last 2,000 years have recognized, and they've recognized this rightly, by the way, that the believer in Christ does not have to observe the ceremonial laws. You take as an example the sacrifices. This is the easiest one to explain. Of course, we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore because what we've been taught is that Christ was the once-for-all sacrifice to which all those were pointing. Those were all a shadow of what was to come. If, if, I, if that light was on that goes into that back hall and all I could see was somebody's shadow emerging, I know somebody's coming, but that shadow is not the somebody. But when they come around the corner, now the substance of that shadow, the person himself, has arrived. And now I know who it is. See, all those ceremonial laws, all those seasons, and going to Jerusalem and observing the Passover and the Feast of Booze and all of those types of things, Pentecost, we're not under any obligation to obey those because we properly understand, friends, that those were pointing to Christ, all fulfilled in him now. We've recognized that we cannot fulfill the societal laws. As a matter of fact, if we did that, we would go to prison. Every time somebody committed adultery, we'd have to kill them, see. And our laws would not allow that to happen. That was for a particular people in a particular land under God as their leader. Do you understand? They were their own people under God, and they did. See, I bring some of this out because sometimes you'll... Deal, you'll talk to somebody about the Bible and they'll say, oh, well, what about this? You're just gonna kill somebody for this or that because they don't understand how the Bible's laid out. They don't understand the connection anymore and they certainly don't see the fulfillment in Christ. But what the church has clearly upheld for, in the main, for 2,000 years now is that Christians are still obligated I'll use that word, not for salvation, not for saving pur purposes, not to be saved, but they are obligated to the moral law of God in their lives. Specifically, though not exclusively, expressed in the Ten Commandments. Lying is still sinful. Like, God didn't change those Ten Commandments masterfully. I mean masterfully express morality 
in very deep and profound ways. You could take each one of them and just keep expanding them just like Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount. Exactly like he did. He's like, you want to talk about adultery? Let's talk about adultery. It goes right to your heart. If you even look at somebody you're committing adultery, you can take all of those and do the exact same thing with it. The moral law of God has not changed. What he has called sin is still sin. What he's called righteousness is still righteous. What Paul is dealing with here, I think, in Romans chapter 7, is in the main, he's going to talk about that moral law of God. Though, of course, he's also dealing with the fact that we are released from the ceremonial and others. But I know that because I look at verse 7. When he's talking about the law here, by no, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For what I, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. You see. Dealing largely, especially in our progress of sanctification, with this issue of pursuing righteousness and saying no to sin. That was all in chapter 6. And the guide for what is sinful and righteous is God's moral law. Now here's why I had to go out of my way to talk about that. Because there are some who read Romans 7, 1 through 6, And they hear Paul say things like this. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you have also, what? Died to the law through the body of Christ. Or they'll read in verse 6. But now we are released from the law. Now they read that, and here's the conclusion they draw. Something to this effect. Since we're released from the law, and we've died to the law, we are under no obligation to obey the law. Some of them take it as far as to say this, and by law, remember, I'm honing in now on the moral law of God. That's what would be in question. That it's almost like you could take those pages in your Bible and tear them out. You don't need them anymore. We're done with that. Friends, I would like to argue that that is a way of taking Paul's words and twisting them and distorting them to make them say something he never intended to say. I'm going to put up on the screen for you 2 Peter chapter 3, very important passage here, verses 15 and 16. Peter says this, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So he's talking about Paul now in Paul's letters like Romans, right? As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these things, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. How many would agree with Peter? I wrestled this week with this passage, still wrestling with it. This is why this is more of an introduction and not so much into the details yet because I'm still working some details out. There are portions of Paul that you have to think and study and make connections to. They're difficult. They're challenging. Now, I would also say the same thing to Peter. I got to say, that's the pot calling the kettle black right there. (laughs) 
Because you've got some strange, you got some things too that are hard to understand. But look at what he says the danger is here. When you get something in the scripture that is hard to understand, what happens? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There are some things in the scriptures that are just so clear. It's really hard. Well, they do it. Some of them will do it. Some people will do it. They'll twist those too, but it's harder to do it than the things that are more challenging. And these ignorant and unstable people go into passages like this and they read statements like this. You're released from the law and you're dead to the law and they draw wrong conclusions like this. The Ten Commandments has no bearing on your life. Some go as far as to say sin is really not even sin anymore. So like in the New Testament, the door is wide open to do whatever you want. You now become the lawgiver. You become the one who determines what is righteous and what is sinful, you see. They take it that far. Now, let me give you a modern example of someone who takes Scripture and twists it and draws conclusions that are not what was being taught in the passage, okay? Now, I am hesitant to do this, I'm reluctant. I do not want to be known as the guy who's just against everything. All he's known for is what he's against, right? I don't want to be that guy. But these things are really important, and they're becoming increasingly important because these people, some of the people that say some of the things that are wrong, are very prominent. You know, Paul said, and I referenced this in my prayer earlier, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with, catch this, Calvary, love is not enough in a church. It needs to come with knowledge and all discernment. You know what discernment is? It's the ability to choose between two or more things, the right thing or the best thing. With knowledge and all discernment so that you may, see, approve what is excellent. John told us last week, remember when we read from 1 John, he said, test the spirits to see if they are from God. You know what you need to do to do that? You need knowledge and you need discernment. Some of the people that teach wrong things and twist things, like one, I'm about to read one, have churches filled with people that accept what they're saying because they don't have knowledge or discernment. That's the problem. I want to talk to you this morning about Andy Stanley. His father, Charles Stanley, is probably the one most of you, I'm guessing, in our demographic are most familiar with. Uh, Charles Stanley went to be with the Lord just a week or two ago. Preached the Bible his entire life almost, really. Had decades-long ministry. His son, Andy Stanley, has been in ministry himself for a long time, pastors one of, if not the largest, evangelical megachurches in the country. In other words, every week, 
thousands of people come to his congregation. Thousands. In addition, he has an online presence. People watch his videos online. In addition, he sells books that people buy. Very influential man. When you're that influential, pastors of small churches have the right to take your stuff and teach their congregation it's wrong, okay? We have that right to do it. You're that influential. You are guiding people in different directions. Now listen to what he said. A few years ago, he preached a series of three messages. I think his primary text was Acts chapter 15. That's why I read it earlier. And he made a statement that really started a lot of controversy. Here it is. Peter, James, Paul elected, listen to this, to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And friends, we must as well. Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. What do you do when you unhitch something? You leave it behind, right? Anybody in here have a camper or trailer? It's hitched up. You're you're bringing it with you. You unhitch it. You pull off. It's left behind. That's what that means. No other way to interpret what that means. To which I would say, that is not what Acts 15 taught. I don't have time to explain that at all. But clearly from what Paul is teaching to the Romans, using the Jewish scriptures over and over and over again in all 16 chapters, he clearly never intended anyone to get the impression that you unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures. The Jewish scriptures are the roots of our faith. It'd be like cutting a tree off and throwing it away from the roots. What's going to happen if we saw, if we cut a tree down and sever it from its roots? What happens to the tree? It dies. He goes on. Now to make this point, because this is so important, I want you to hear me say it. Here's what the Jerusalem council was saying to the Gentiles. You are not accountable to the Ten Commandments. We're done with that. We just read it, didn't we? This is what happens. This is the type of thing you can say in a church where they don't read the Bible. We just read it. They didn't even mention the Ten Commandments. It was all about circumcision to be saved, by the way, in the context of justification. He goes on. The Old Covenant Law of Moses was not the go-to source regarding sexual behavior for the church. More importantly, the Old Testament, or the law and the prophets, as they called it, was not going to be the go-to source for any behavior for the church. My friends, in the Jerusalem council, all of those leading men were Jews. They wrote to that church and they gave them four things to abstain from. One of them was sexual immorality. Where did those Jewish men derive their source for the sexual morality of the Christian church? Did they make it up themselves maybe? Or did they pull from culture? What's going on? What's, what's the winds of sexual morality going on in the Roman culture right now? Let's see what's happening. No, they pulled it 
from the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, the source of all of those moral teachings of God concerning things that are righteous, you see. It goes on, one more quote from him. Have you ever heard preachers kind of rant about sin? Everybody here is like, yeah, I've heard that. It's like they're angry at sinners. They're angry about sin. They're just judgmental. They're angry about sinners and happy about hell. Listen to this. That's old covenant thinking that leaked in. Beyond the law now, it's just the whole testament. That's mix and match. That's an old covenant prophet railing against the nation of Israel. God's going to judge you and God's going to get you. It's Old Testament. It's Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, you know what we discover? That sin doesn't make God angry. Now, it should not surprise anyone in here to know that recently, and some of these comments are a couple years old, he's been leading his congregation to accept homosexuality, gay marriage, LGBTQ+. He was on the long road plan. He knows. He's smart. He's a businessman. Okay? And he knows that in order to accept those things and keep this church growing and keep this church blossoming, you do have to unhitch from the Old Testament and especially the sexual morality that the Old Covenant clearly displays. Right from the very beginning in the creation of Adam and Eve, God's good law. This is nothing new, of course. I can bring you back almost 2,000 years ago to this man, Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N, one of the earliest heretics of the church. He was a Christian man or claimed to be a Christian, and interestingly enough, in our study in Romans, he showed up to the Roman church at around 135 A.D., this very church that's being written to. He goes, joins in with this church as a Christian. He's a very wealthy man. He, uh, he actually gave the church a gift that would have been equal to about 100 years' wages for the average worker. That's a lot of money. He had wealth. He had influence. But Marcion has become best known for his view of scriptures and his view of God. Much like Andy Stanley, which the roots of Andy Stanley's Different God in the Old Testament to the God in the New. God's not angry anymore. God's changed his view on sin, etc. Marcion taught that the God of the Old Testament is angry and harsh and judging, and therefore it cannot be the same God that Jesus is introducing to us in the New Testament. Marcion got to the point where he rejected the entire Old Testament of the Bible, and he only accepted the Gospel of Luke in selected portions of the Apostle Paul where his Bible. He started a, a church that apparently lasted about 50 years, but the church at large at that time excommunicated him as they should have. You're a heretic, you're out. That's the idea. You no longer can be considered a brother. Friends, these are examples of wrong conclusions to Paul's teaching about the law and the believer's relationship to it. What does Paul mean by you are released from the law, you are dead to the law? Well, what we have to know, and the reason I wanted to start this way this week, what we have to know is what he did not mean. He did not mean we're done with it all. He did not mean we take it out of the Bible. 
He did not mean we unhitch our faith and the gospel in our life from the Old Testament of the Scriptures. He didn't mean that God's no longer viewing sin in the same way, like there was some kind of shift in the the character of God that all of a sudden sin isn't as sinful as it was. He certainly doesn't mean we don't use it and study from it and quote it. Look back at chapter 3. Do you remember this in verse Beginning in verse 27, Paul's talking about faith in Jesus. You're saved by faith apart from works of the law. Paul says, verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now listen to this question. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Now that we have faith, now that we see this clearly and we're trusting in Christ, are we going to overthrow the law? That's the question that we're coming about. Is that the conclusion, says Paul, that you should draw to my teaching here? And he uses that famous expression, by no means, which means never, God forbid, no, 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 under any circumstances, no. On the contrary, what do Christian people do? We what? Uphold the law, you see. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture, all of it, and he's remaining to Timothy, mainly the Old Testament that they had then, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So you can teach the law, and it will have all of these effects, and you can train people in righteousness because the law itself teaches what is righteous, you see. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We will admit that there are people that misuse the law. We get it. There's a way to teach the law. But the law is good and needs to be taught, you see. In chapter 7 itself, look at this, verse 12. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Look at chapter 7, verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not do, I agree with the law that it is good. He's saying even when I sin against the law, I still agree with the law that it is good. The problem isn't the law, you see. Chapter 7, verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And I think there is the key verse I want us to focus on for a second and then we'll bring it to a conclusion. I delight in the law in my inner being. The problem that we have seen in some Christian circles with the law itself is that Christians don't like it. It's spoken about oftentimes in such a negative way. Friends, I would say this. If you're not going to be condemned by the law because you're justified in Christ, then why would you not delight in the law? If the law expresses God's righteousness... And his righteousness concerning hum, human beings and their relationships, what about that would you not delight in? You see, I think the problem is, friends, is that 
many of these people teaching these things are still just lawless people. They're people with hearts that are unregenerated and they're void of the Spirit of God. So they hate the law. They've got to be free from the law. There are people, they are people, Romans 8, verse 7, that their mind is just set on the flesh and is therefore hostile to God. That mind that's set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, and it wants it off, you see. I need to break free from this law so I can be who I want and do what I want. Let me close with looking at, I want to show you two psalms. We'll wind down with these two psalms. And it is no coincidence. Psalm 1 and 2 are the first two psalms in the book of Psalms. They are there providentially. Listen to Psalm 1, the beginning of it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, just pause right there. You could be a very legalistic, non-spirit indwelt person and be Psalm 1-1. You can see what's right and wrong. You can have a good moral compass. You could even know the law of God, and you could do those things to a degree. You ever met moral people? A lot of them. But the Psalm 1 person has something different, doesn't he? Look at Psalm 1, 2. But his delight, not only does he not do those things, but look at this. His delight is in the law of the Lord, the Torah. He loves it. He's like Paul, or Paul's like him, right? I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is one of the reasons we'll know that Paul, those of you who know the discussion around Romans 7, and is Paul talking about himself before Jesus or after? No, he's talking about himself after. Only people who know they're justified and have the spirit of God in them are people that delight in the law of God in their inner being. The rest of the people are afraid of it. They may be keeping it, but they're keeping it because they know it condemns them and they're trying to get out of that mess. He delights in this law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. And I'm gonna argue that those first three verses are what Paul is describing happens to the believer in Romans 7. You become united to Christ so that you can bear fruit for God and you have the spirit in you. It's all there, that we're people that delight, that we use the law, and now we're gonna actually bear spiritual fruit to God. But I think the key is this idea of delighting in the law of the Lord. Do you know, sin in our lives becomes a major problem when we love it more than we love God's instruction. 
Because the things we love, the things we delight in, are the ten things we tend to do. We will go out of our way to do the things we delight in. Our problem with sin is that we delight in sin too much. Look at verse chapter 2 now, Psalm 2. And listen to this. Listen to the opposite heart. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, what are they saying? They're gathering against the Lord. What are they saying? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. We do not want God restricting us with his law. We want to do what we want to do, God. It's that heart of enmity of God that does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It is opposed to God's law. It hates God's law. It wants its own law. That is the unregenerate heart, the person apart from Jesus Christ, the person apart from the spirit that he places in us that gives us these new longings and these new desires and new delights. If you're a person here this morning and in your, even if you're struggling with sin, friends, listen to me, but in your heart, you can look at what God said is right and you say, I want to do that. Even if you say, I haven't found out how to do it perfectly yet, but it's what I want. I remember reading something from John Newton once, and he said, trying to encourage believers struggling with their sin. If you could snap your finger right now, and that sin you're struggling with would be gone forever, would you do it? If the answer to that is yes, that's really good news. Because you delight in the law of the Lord more than you delight in that sin. And friends, that's what we'll get into more in Romans 7, and it's what we'll get into in Romans 8. The key to all of this, by the way, is life in the Spirit. See, we're not going to become a law-focused people. Paul's going to tell us that next week in those first six verses. We're not a law-focused people. We're a Christ-focused people who walk by the Spirit that we get when we trust in Christ, and therefore we bear fruit to God. But the law is not gone. And more than that, we should be a people who love it, embrace it, delight in it, treasure it for what it is, God's holy word. Let's pray. God, we want to be a church that reads all of your laws and commands, both the Old and New Testaments, what you have said is right and wrong, and we want to delight in what you call righteousness. We want to love righteousness, your righteousness, and want to be righteous in our lives by your Spirit. So please help us to do that. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the man who delights in the law of the Lord is ultimately perfectly Jesus. Jesus is the one who delights in the law of God. So we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table that we are united to Christ, and so all of his perfection, her, his perfection and his righteousness becomes ours. So we are.